Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know then that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on their carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word, and let's bow once again. Father in heaven, we... Thank you for another Sunday and another time to study your word. We need your help with these things, first to understand them, but most importantly then to obey them. We ask this in the strong name of the Lord. Amen. All right, so far, Abram has been tested through stresses of anxiety and ambition. That is, as long as we've been studying Abraham in the book of Genesis. That happened, that introduction in chapter 12. And if you remember, he didn't have anything then. Well, he did, but then God asked him to leave all that and go to a place he didn't even know where he was going. And then in the latter part of that chapter, a famine breaks out in the place where he stayed and had to go to Egypt. So he's basically penniless. I think that would be something you could call... uh, Anxiety. By the time he gets to chapter 13, though, 
he's got quite a bit more. He had left Egypt, and in Egypt, because he told his wife to say that she was his sister, so nobody would kill him in order to take his wife, she was taken anyway, and it backfired on him. But the dowry that Pharaoh paid for what he thought was Abram's sister, he was allowed to keep. So now he's very rich. And in chapter 14, which is the result of having had to split up between him and his nephew Lot because they had so much, there's a skirmish of warfare from the north down to the south, and eventually where Lot went and built his tent was conquered, and Lot is taken away, and Abram is able to bring all of them back. He's even more rich than he's ever been, but he's got to figure out whose loyalties are most important. The king of Salem, who he gives 10% of those spoils to, or the king of Sodom, whose days are numbered anyway, and wants nothing to do with him. That would be what you would call tests of ambition. What's most important here, the promise of God or you making a name for yourself? So pressures now in chapter 15 that we just read are over a new test, uh, a hope deferred. He's been waiting. He's going to wait another six chapters and another 25 years and all of it has to do with how in the world am I going to be the father of a nation if I don't have one single son? That's what God is talking about here in this 15th chapter. So we've said many times that the book of Genesis is the record of God's dealings with mankind from the beginning of time. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And by the end of that week of creation, he's created man and woman um, those of the creation made in his own image, a human being. But then by the time we get to chapter 12 with Abraham, God has made a promise to one human being to bless the nations of the world. But here in chapter 15, God is going to do something unthinkable if we've been tracking the story so far. He's going to enter into a binding covenant with a human being promising that human being things that he's on the line to produce or his character is assassinated as a result. This is unprecedented, I suppose, but maybe unthinkable if we're thinking from the position of God, if we were ever able to do that. Why in the world would he do such a thing? So the events here in what we just read are precipitated by Abram's uneasiness, I guess would be a good word for it, with his Advancing age. I don't know of anyone who's comfortable with their advancing age, but it, it's coming to the point of time where he's trying to determine whether or not this is ever going to happen because it should have happened by now, and if it doesn't happen soon, it might not be possible to happen. So he's asking questions. Um, years have passed since the promise of chapter 12. Abram and Sarah, Sarai as it's pronounced before it's changed to Sarah, Abram before he's called Abraham, still have no children. And the two questions on Abram's heart in this chapter set up uh, this transformation from this point forward as to how we are to understand the relationship between God of the Bible and the humans that he created. In the beginning... It was a very basic relationship, and it was a warm 
and a meaningful relationship. He walked with Adam and Eve every evening in the afternoon. After sin entered the picture, well, then one of their kids kills the other. Uh, we need a flood to erase a world that's headlong thrown themselves into sin. Uh, the Tower of Babel is a failure of epic proportions. And then we get to chapter 12 with Abraham, and there's this promise. But he's going to deal with him differently than he's dealt with anybody up to this point. Genesis 15 is monumental, as far as the Bible goes, for two reasons. We read them both. But first, in its declaration that Abram was justified by faith. Did you catch that? He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is going to have, uh, well, basically write the New Testament on this subject. Uh, this is Romans 4. This is Galatians 3. Uh, his brother, half-brother James, uh, Jesus' half-brother James would write about this in James 2. Um, but it's the explanation of the gospel that someone who's not righteous is counted righteous or credited with righteousness that's not their own on the basis of their belief in someone else being righteous, trustworthy, dependable, keeps their promises. So we've got that. And then second of all, we've got the record of this covenant. And the chapter begins with God reaffirming his commitment to bless Abraham. And then Abraham says, oh, really? Um, how's that going to come to pass? And then concludes with God making this covenant with him. We'll spend most of our time with the latter. We only need to spend a few moments with the first because we've covered some of that already. And we certainly covered a lot of that in the book of Acts many months ago. It's important to see, and I want you to look at this. This is how we'll uh, at least cover the declaration of Abram's justification by faith. Uh, midway through verse 1. We're going to see that though Abram's faith is not fully formed, it's his faith that shines through here, not his questions. Because it does sound like he's complaining maybe or bewildered, justifiably so, I, I, I would think. This is all new to him and he's given God faith enough to be counted for righteousness, but it, this is what was said to Abram. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, or Abram, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Skip a bit. Behold, you have given me no offspring. Skip to verse 5. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens. And this was how he asked him to number the stars. That's what I plan to give you. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The, that verse 6 gives us God's estimation of that conversation. Between us, we're thinking, well, he, he might be wavering in this faith. Maybe it's, it's still uh, childlike faith. But at the end of it, he believed. It's counted to him for righteousness. And I thought before we move on, I wrote this one line down. Next time your faith has questions. Or your questions threaten your faith. I don't know. Think of it either way. But anyone who has faith at all questions it at times. We're human beings. We can't see into the spiritual realm. All of this is faith. And it doesn't look as if Abram's questions had offended God. But when that happens next time, I think this is a great invitation. 
Go take a walk, preferably outside. And look at something bigger than you can understand. And if, if God is saying to Abraham, look, I put all those stars exactly where they are. I can give you a son. That's no problem. The problem is only your faith. Did I put those there? Maybe you need to take a trip to the beach. That's where I go. There's so many lights these days. I don't think the stars look like it looked when Abram looked up. You got to gotta get away from the lights or up in the hills maybe. Look at the ocean. If God can separate the land from the waters, I think he can take care of whatever's problematic. And if it's not taken care of, then maybe there's a reason for waiting. It's going to be 25 years from this point before Isaac, Abraham's son, is born. It's all a process. And it takes a while. You don't raise mature Christians overnight or after an eight-week Bible study or after eight years' worth of Bible study. It takes a lifetime. And our belief is counted for righteousness. So, what is so ground-shaking about what we see here in Genesis 15 regarding a covenant. What is a covenant? I think what's so ground-shaking is that the sovereign God of the universe who spoke it all into existence out of nothing should choose to bind himself in covenant, tying his future actions to his promises made with the creature of his own making, a human being. Have you ever gotten... Uh, involved say in business dealings with someone you wish later you hadn't and let's just say it was something that happened on a playground you know uh, I'll trade you my pudding uh, for your whatever baseball card only to find out that it just absolutely goes downhill. You, you put none of it in writing. And then who's going to arbitrate or come down in the decision between two kids on a playground? I wish I could say that it got better as we grew up. But really, what, what does legal work cost? Uh, how mired do we get when trying to convince whoever can... Do something about it that this is really the way it went down and this is really the truth. It's miserable. Now, that's just us on this planet, but imagine the God of all creation saying, I'm going to tie my whole integrity, my promise keeping ability, and a long tunnel of time worth of dealing with a specific group of people to bless the rest of the nations on earth, and I'm going to hitch that wagon to Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, who thought it was a great idea to tell everybody that his wife was his sister. And he'll do it again. There's all kinds of crazy things that will happen. And then what to do with his son Isaac? And worse than that, what to do with his son, Jacob? And then how to work through Joseph. And then through Saul, the people's choice for a king. And then David. And then Solomon. And then split the And on and on and on and on. This is where all that begins. He's covenanting, promising, signing a contract. 
and better than a contract with a human being. So during the time of Abraham, and this is in an attempt at least to understand this morning what a covenant is and is not. We'll study more about covenant as it goes on. We'll come back to it in chapter 17 when uh, more expectations are brought to bear. But what is it and what isn't it? And it'll take us understanding a little bit of ancient culture, at least to get started. Biblical covenants uh, that are written in ancient times, uh, during the time of Abraham, ancient culture understood covenantal agreements as stipulating or articulating commitments and expectations, usually between conquering parties and vassal parties. Okay, what does that mean? Well, way back when, there were agreements between groups of people, primarily a stronger group of people who exercises authority over a weaker group of people, but there's a, a, a document drawn up. This is how we'll treat you in your response. You'll treat us this way. Um, usually it had to do with the conquering uh, military uh, party promising military protection to the weaker and the conquered people would promise allegiance and military aid if needed along with tribute and taxes. We just read examples of that with uh, those four kings against five kings and the warring between the two of them. So biblical covenants bear many of the same elements as these covenants we see elsewhere in history. Even some of the same language as those found in ancient extra-biblical examples. But there are differences, and the differences are telling. That's what makes this covenant different than all the other covenants. Biblical covenants bear many of the same elements, same language. One feature that both biblical and extra-biblical accounts share is the symbolic acting out of certain consequences that would befall whoever were to break the terms of an agreement. I wish we still did it this way. Let's just say there's two um, tech companies that merge. And then they got all the shareholder stuff they talk about. But I would like for them to put out some type of a film of like a mushroom cloud. This is what happens if either of us do what we're not supposed to do to each other, which usually inevitably happens. And the shareholders feel the mushroom cloud, right? When something blows all to pieces. But this is the way they used to do it. One record in history, uh, each would take a handful of sand. These are both the parties. And as the sand like runs through their fingers, they would say, this be done to us or worse, that we should be ground fine as grains of sand if either of us break the covenant between the two of us. Now, what we read here is far more dramatic. And that's the business of cutting animals in half. And just imagine, the uh, best way I know to describe it, I don't know if you were, have ever been around a true southern pig picking where you cut the pig from head to tail across his backbone or with his backbone. So you got two pieces. You got half a head, two legs, half a head, two legs. You have to be pretty good to split that tiny little tail, you know, in half. I don't really know that... that uh, I can't remember. There used to be a joke about that. Um, I can't remember. I'll remember tonight when it doesn't matter, and I'll tell myself, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, 
they would arrange the bodies that were split in half of these animals in opposing rows to make an aisle that they could walk through. And the, the visual is, if either of us break this covenant, what's done to us is what was done to these animals. That's the punishment. That would be the cost, the sacrifice involved. And it's, it's so uh, gruesome. There's, there's no way for any of those animals to ever have been able to survive that. It's just the picture alone says all that it, it needs to say. So understanding the common cultural background makes Genesis 15 even more remarkable. Because if you noticed in here... Both parties did not walk between that aisle of split animals. Only one. The other did not. Uh, we read that God walks through the animal pieces after the sun had set and had become dark and Abram is in this incapacitated state and this smoking fire and flaming torch, which is exactly the way that God's leading the people through the wilderness is described. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. That is what goes between the pieces. And Abram does not walk through the pieces. That's huge. It's completely different. Now, if you were to think of something close, we don't do covenants these days. Some would articulate their marriage vows as a covenant, and that's good. It's, what, it's, it's much more fitting. But for most of Americans' understanding, we would think of contracts, um, which is different than a covenant in a number of points. But a contract is entered into freely by two parties who commit to furthering their personal interests by dealing with each other in a specified way for a specified period of time. Contracts can be dissolved at any time both parties agree to do so. And if you were going to try to do a conversion here between covenant and contract, this would be like God writing up a contract with Abram, but there only being one signature on it. As if he's going to uphold both sides of the party. Or he doesn't mind if Abram doesn't sign his half. I know how I'm going to treat you, but at the moment, how you treat me isn't important enough to hold up the deal. We're going to go ahead with it. Now, the difference between Abram's passivity, he didn't walk through, and God's activity, he did, destroys the requirement of reciprocity. That's what's the same among all these agreements. Uh, it's, it's uh, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, and blah, blah, blah. But it's always two-sided. Both sides have their own interests. Those interests expect certain things. And at the same time, there's, there's not only like an offensive interest, this is what I want to get, on both sides, but there's a defensive interest. This is what I don't want to lose on either side. But with this, what we're reading today, it's only one-sided. So it looks as if the defense is not even in place on God's side. And it doesn't look as if Abram has yet 
to materialize any of the expectations on his end. So thinking in that way, in human history, as far as religion goes, all the way back until this point and even into this day, um, gods have always wanted sacrifices and worship. You pick a religion. Let's pick on uh, ancient Greece. Their, their whole pantheon of gods. This is Clash of the Titans, if you need something in your mind. That whole story, the gods are depressed and angry if not getting enough prayer and sacrifice, right? So there's certain things they have to do and different ways they go about it. Sometimes they'll turn up the heat. Sometimes they'll open up the windows of heaven. But in that arrangement, the gods are dependent on the prayer and sacrifice of the people, right? And from ancient until now, most religions of the world, practically all of them, believe that the gods they pray to and make sacrifices to will respond to these offerings and bless them in response to it, right? We've, we talked about this earlier, how it was totally different than what we've seen in Genesis so far. That the gods look down and say, oh, that guy's doing a good job, I'll bless him. Or uh, he's blessed me, so I'll bless him back where everything we've read so far in Genesis is that nobody's blessing or praying. They've all sinned against God. He's just trying to keep the place from going completely and totally off the rails with floods and judgment and confusing towers of Babel. But with the story with the flood, there was Noah. And God said, hey, I'm going to save you and your family. And then Noah builds an altar and starts praying. It's different. So... All of the covenants, all the agreements seem to work on that way. Uh, we expect things of each other. But what's new in Genesis 15 and unique among all the religions of the world today, listen here, is that something other than self-interested exchange relationships are possible between humanity and God in heaven. Basically, the world runs on self-interested relationship exchanges. Uh, a, a country that does that well has a fine GDP, right? We trade, we create, we share what we create with each other, but it's self-interested exchange relationships. They're far more prevalent than you would think. You'd think, well, my marriage and my home doesn't work that way. Why did you ask the person on a date to begin with? self-interested exchange relationship. There's certain things you wanted, certain things they want. And if there is any selflessness, humility, we got that from Jesus who has it in spades, but none of us have anything but selfish hearts that lie to us and we're inclined to believe them, right? Jeremiah 17, 1, 9. The whole world is miserably locked in self-interested exchange relationships. But here, God in heaven says, you know what, Abram? I'm interested in something different than that. I don't expect anything out of you. Not before I give you grace and allow you to relate to me in ways that no one's ever related to me. Because 
there's no one that's ever been righteous. It's completely and totally brand new. So let's put this in the form of a question. If God had determined to establish a unilateral covenant, one-sided, a covenant of sacrifice, why go to the trouble of walking alone through these sacrificed animals? Why do you need the bloodshed, the horror? What, what's this all about? The purpose of the exercise was to demonstrate to Abram the seriousness of his promise as well as the covenant commitment to that promise. Abraham's there just to see how committed God actually is, that he'll do this, but hang it all on himself. The only thing I could think of that would somewhere come close by was when I needed a loan to purchase a car. And it was a long story. I still have the car. It's still in Virginia, by the way. I needed a co-signature. Because guess what? At 17, I didn't have any credit. Bank would laugh at me. They should. Banks should still laugh at people that don't have credit. Right? Problem is when banks invite people with no credit and lend them money. Um, my father signed that. And for the longest time, I could make deposits into the account, but I could never withdraw anything because I still had no credit, right? This is God giving credit to an unworthy credit recipient with no collateral on Abram's part. We'll get to that here in a minute. So the answer to that question, the sacrificed animals were a sign of the costs, the seriousness associated with a broken covenant. This covenant can be broken. If it's broken, blood is involved, sacrifice is involved. Why would we waste these animals in such a way? And just because God walked through the animal pieces alone didn't mean there would be no costs or penalty involved if Abram or his descendants failed on their end of the agreement. You say, wait a minute. If, if Abram's going to be held responsible to the terms of the covenant, but he didn't walk through, and he hasn't put up any collateral, then how in the world is this going to work if indeed he fails on his side of the deal? Well, it only meant that ultimately God himself would guarantee the cost of failure for both parties. Now, he's God and he can't fail, so it's not necessary on his end, but he still puts it up. Abraham is human and thereby fallen, sinfully incapable of what is necessary to fulfill his end of the covenant. God's co-signed the agreement, but there's no question as to whether or not Abram can succeed. He has to fail. There's no way he's going to be able to do it. And what no one in this story understands at this point as it's written, real time in ancient history, what they would have understand and what they wouldn't understand for years and years and years to come is something truly amazing. The sacrifice required should this covenant fail, the collateral escrowed to guarantee its sovereignty is none other than the sinless Son of God whose broken body and shed blood 
would be sufficient to atone not just for Abram's, but any whosoever among humanity upon their failure to bear God's image in righteousness. You don't see that from Genesis 15. It starts to come into shape when you have God tell Abram to sacrifice his son Isaac that's really the only hope of this whole thing ever happening. Just to paint the picture, oh, I wasn't just kidding. I wanted to show you something else. There's this ram in the thicket. I will provide the sacrifice. For what? Breaking the covenant, which I co-signed for you, which I'm happy to enter into with my half exposed, where you get all the good stuff and I'm the one that loses. Saying that this is different from all others is, is not even to begin to explain it. And even as God moved through those carcasses and Abram slept, God's righteous act could not be more worthy of his own glory and Abram's could not be more short of it. How does it go in Romans 3.23? Fallen short of the glory of God. You've gone into covenant with someone who's fallen short of the glory of God and you did it on purpose. And just as sure as God's promise was guaranteed, so was the inevitability of his son's death. If you want to think of it that way, when did it become necessary that Christ die on the cross? When his father walked through the pieces, striking a covenant with sinful men and women. That's what it caused. Now, Abram doesn't see this. His children won't see it. King David won't see it. Nobody will see it until we get to Christmas and Easter. And then as the church understands what has happened, they start popping up everywhere. Anyone who has access to the New Testament can know these truths. God walked alone through the pieces and offered up his son, and he did it for you. So I think that's enough to jump back to verse 6. Abraham believed it. Believed what? There's not much there. Doesn't matter. It was enough. God counted it to him for righteousness. We know more of the story. Do you believe it? If you do, it's counted to you for righteousness. You're not righteous, but it's credited to you just for believing. That he is who he said he was. That this book is true. That we are sinners. That we must repent. But that he loves us enough to walk through the pieces, offer up his son, to make us his own. It's quite a story. We left a lot here. We'll come back to some of it later, but enough for today. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we...